Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb-Blossengame, and I am your host. Today, we have my friend Lynette. Lynette was born into an addicted family. Her father was a severe alcoholic, and her mother struggled with drug use. When her parents' lives became overrun with drugs and alcohol, Lynette decided to leave. She was only 13 years old. She dropped out of school in the eighth grade and began couch surfing to make ends meet. She spent much of her life just trying to figure out how to live a normal life. Eventually, she joined the Job Corps, got her GED, and got married a few times. At the age of 39, Lynette enrolled in community college with no intention of getting a degree. After many years in community college, Lynette went on to get her bachelor's degree. Today, Lynette is a substance use disorder counselor with a master's degree in clinical counseling from Bellevue University. So Lynette, she went to community college at 39. She graduated around 46, 47, and then went and got her master's degree and now is a substance use disorder counselor and is amazing and has an amazing story. Oh my goodness. She somehow managed to pull herself. I mean, it's a true story of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and in a family, everyone around her addicted. And somehow she was able to decide that she didn't want to have anything to do with that, that she didn't want to be that. And she was able to change her life. And it's a really, really amazing story that both talks about the addiction, the disease the piece, the neurology that we talk about and how that is transferred from family member to family member. And a lot of that is just very genetic. And then this other piece that is about people's personalities and ways that they can dig down deep and make changes in their life. And Lynette's story is all about that, you know, homeless by the time she was 13 years old and getting jobs and making life work. And then you know, deciding she was going to join the job corps and then moving and getting married and having kids and having that fall through and reinventing herself many, many times when the rest of her family was stuck deep in the dark pit of addiction. And I just, I really think it's wonderful that she has joined the front lines and is helping other people heal. And she can speak to what it's like to be the family member and also what it's like to talk to and help treat alcoholics on a daily basis. So I hope you enjoy this story. It is really something really inspiring and eye-opening about what we can all learn about the disease of addiction for positive change. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Episode 133. Let's do this. You're listening to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Awesome. Lynette, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. 
<laughs> sure. Yeah. I'm glad I get to do this with you. So we always start with a photo, a childhood photo. It started out at the beginning of the season as like a bad haircut photo and it's morphed into whatever the guest wants it to be. And I have this what I think is adorable photo of you in a blue, white, and pink striped dress. And I wanted you to tell me a little bit about this photo and what's going on. Uh, it is, it's probably one of the only like photos that I have. I believe there's very few, but it's, uh, I think it was just, if I remember correctly, it's just a uh, photo of when we went and had pictures done individually as a family and I, I can't think of another time I don't even remember doing it so I don't remember much about it but there's only one so we um we post the photo on our Instagram page along with the episode how old are you in this picture do you know I don't know probably three or four though okay okay I think that kind of segues well into what your childhood was like and kind of opens the door for you to tell us a little bit about why is it that you grew up in a home where you only have maybe one photo from your childhood? What was it like? Where did you grow up? I mean, we started off in uh, Davenport and Bettendorf, Iowa, when I was little. I was actually born in California, but I think from what I understand, about a week later, they went back to Iowa. So I've never really been there. I've never been to California. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, yeah, um, we grew up in Bettendorf and Davenport and until till I was about six or seven years old. My, I'm not sure. Do you want me to just, okay. Yeah, go for it. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. Don't be sorry. You're good. So I can remember living on, uh, I, can, I can remember little pieces of this and that from back there, but not very much. My dad was a pretty severe alcoholic. And so Lots of moving because he was he was always kind of wanted by the law, you know, uh, so there was lots of that. Um, but I think when we were little, maybe not so much, you know, not as much as it turned out to be in the end. So lots of abuse and just I can remember. I'm sorry. I'm not doing this. Um, I can just remember that uh, he would come home drunk, you know, and he would uh, throw things and hit people. And there was always a switch or a belt. And uh, and, and it didn't matter if you were awake or asleep when he got there. It was, you were woken up having done something wrong. He used to tell us that he was God and he knew if we had done something wrong. And generally it was just me that had done something wrong. For some reason, my brother and sisters didn't get that end of it. You know, they uh, they got yelled at and screamed at. They didn't really get hit. But more than that, he was abusive towards my mother, you know, which was pretty big. In the birth order, so you have four siblings. Is that right? Actually, there's five of us, but two of them were never there. They were okay. half siblings. So there was three of us, my older sister, myself, and then my little brother. The two would come and go. And the with your dad and his alcoholism... How old were you when you first remember the correlation between the out of control and the drinking and the hitting? My earliest memory, and, and I guess this is where it's at, is I can remember being hunched on the steps in the middle of the night in one of those little cotton gowns. Like I have this real visual memory of it uh, with my sister. My little brother was in bed. So he must not, I must have been three or four, maybe five years old. And 
deciding whether to dial zero because 911 didn't exist back then. And we were trying to figure out if it was bad enough to call the police. And that's, we knew that if he came home at night, he was drunk, that it was alcohol. I don't know if we knew exactly what. We knew that he had gone drinking because that's what was said, you know. So, yeah, the correlation was there. I think right from the beginning we knew. Because he would go away for three days. This was before my mom started using drugs and stuff. And he would go away for three days and we would eat tuna casserole and dance in the living room and have good times. And then uh, he would return and things would be just crazy. He would hit my mom or I can remember her laying on the couch for three days one time. It seemed like three days. I'm thinking about it today with the medical knowledge that I have. I have to say it probably wasn't three days. Maybe it was a day or two. And we would check her to see if she was still breathing because she was not with it, you know, so um, because he had hit her. So She was so injured. Yes. Yeah, she was injured. Um, I don't remember how she was injured, only that I remember checking on her. And and we were left to ourselves a lot, too, because my mom would work and then he would go drink. And, and so I remember my sister being, she's one year and nine days older than me, and she was taking care of us. And this was in Davenport. We moved from there when we were seven. So it couldn't have been, we, could, we had to have been between the ages of five, six, seven, something like that. So... How old were your parents, or if you if you know a little bit about your parents' backgrounds, were, did they come from abusive families or alcoholic families? Sure. I, I like to do genealogy, so I do know a little bit. Um, my dad came from, his mom was, uh, she was raised, she was born in Kentucky, and he was born in Kentucky, and they were very backwoods, <laughs> you know, and uh, he, uh, so my, she was very much a, uh, a woman of the world, even back in the 40s. Uh, and so very abusive to him. And I remember her. Uh, she got Parkinson's at a very young age and came to live with us. And I remember her chasing us around with a broom and things like that. So she just wasn't a very nice person, if I remember correctly. My uncle was mentally handicapped. I think he was autistic, but at the time they diagnosed him as something else, you know. So, um, but yeah, he was. Uh, so the alcohol was in his life too. And men, lots of men like my grandmother, which was the same for him. He went through lots of women after my mother and before my mother, because there were two children before. What was your relationship like with your mom? You said, you know, she hadn't started using yet. What do you, when did she start using and and what do you think, um, you know, obviously things were tough before she started using. What do you think that breaking point was? I don't know that she wasn't using. I know she drank a little, but I'm pretty sure she wasn't using any drugs. But when I was about seven or eight, we moved from Davenport, well, Bettendorf. We were in Bettendorf and we moved to Houston. And that was where life changed. So, because while it was awful when we were little, you know, there were terrible things that happened, it was worse here. <laughs> so, because that's when she started to pull from him and and became who she was going to be, you know, which was, there was lots of drugs and marijuana. I mean, marijuana is a drug, but there was lots of pills and marijuana and lots of alcohol and lots of men. So, and that happened as soon as we got here, uh, I'd say within a year from the time we moved to Houston. We moved here because my dad was wanted and Texas at the time was a non-extradition state. I just remember hearing that on the way down. 
So it's <laughs> a weird thing to remember. You know, one of the things that I know that happened with your father is like, he got upset with you and, and tied you to a tree. And, you know, you describe your first memory as deciding whether or not to call the police. And so you had this idea somewhere that this was a not normal and B that you could call someone for help and that there was some threshold right in your mind. There was a threshold for like, okay, so if it's quote unquote this bad, then we call for help. It seemed like there were a bunch of these circumstances and, you know, I'm referring specifically to the one with where you were tied to a tree. How did you, was, was there ever a time where you did call the police or you did think, okay, enough is enough. You know, my parents, this isn't normal. I'm going to reach out for help. Yeah, it's funny. I didn't think about it till you just said it. And it's, it never occurred to me to call the police for myself. Interesting. Only if she was, he was harming my mother. And that never occurred to me till this very moment. So um, when he did the tree thing where he had gotten upset with me, I, I was never one to keep my thoughts to myself. I kind of, he used to call me Mouse. That was his nickname for me. And so if he said something, I always said something. It didn't matter how much I got beat. I, I always talked back, I guess, because um, you were right. I knew things weren't normal. But like, I knew there were other people out there that didn't live the way we lived, but I thought everybody I knew lived the way we lived. Got it. Okay. So, but he got upset with me one day. He got tired of it. He used to put tape on my mouth and he would say, I, I couldn't speak. Right. So, and uh, I guess that day the tape wasn't working or whatever. And so he took me out back, chained me up to the tree, put the tape back on my mouth and told me to that I was a dog, that I I could bark. I was not allowed to speak, but I could bark. And uh, I don't think it was long before he thought about what he'd done. And he came back out and took me off the tree because I don't remember being out there for very long. Um, but I do remember it happening, you know, and only one time. Um, there were other little crazy things like that. But in the 70s, when I was raised, it was okay to abuse your children. Nobody was there to stop it, you know. He would do things like, this was all in Iowa, so I couldn't have been six, seven, eight years old, maybe seven. He would do things like put rocks in the corners and make us kneel on the rocks till our knees bled. Stand in front of him with pop bottles, the heavy glass pop bottles, and if our arms went down, he would beat us, you know, things like that. Just, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say yes. I think it was just me. I've talked to my brother and sister since then, and they don't recall it, so... They recall, but not like I do. It's interesting how you can have, and and I have this experience where you can have three kids grow up in the same home and they witness the same things, but they don't experience the same things. And they don't, you know, like how the memory works and and what things are are so life-changing, monumental for one that aren't for the other. And, And it's it's a real testament to how each person is so unique and that trauma looks very, and even in the same household, trauma can affect each person differently because watching you go through those things would also be very traumatic. Interesting that they don't remember, right? Maybe they were too young or they had other things going on, but the brain does really amazing things, as you know, to protect itself and protect itself from this belief that either you're bad or that the people who are in charge of you are bad or, or, you know, unwell or what have you. What did you think about yourself being treated 
this, like, what did you, what were some of your beliefs about yourself having grown up in this environment and being treated this way? Um, it took me a while to recognize that there was a belief, you know, about myself. But uh, as life kind of went on and took over and I got older and started having experiences, I started realizing what I did believe about myself. And um, because he was very verbally abusive as well, very, you're stupid, lots of cussing and, you know, calling us names, not smart enough to make these decisions. I, he, he did those things right up to the day he died, which was four years ago. You know, so he wasn't given the opportunity as much. But if you talked to him and told him something, he'd come back with, well, that's just stupid. You're just an idiot, you know. And so um, but when we were kids, particularly with me, uh, it was very I didn't have very good self-esteem. I didn't think I was very smart. That's for sure. Um, As it turns out, I wasn't I am very smart. Um, but I didn't know that. And uh, I didn't have basic things that people grow up with. You know, there was incidents when I got older. It's kind of astray from what we're talking about. But I was married and um, I wrecked my car. And I thought I called my husband and we'd only been married a short time. And I called him and I said, I wrecked the car. And now I have to drive around with this car like this. And it's, it's horrible. We had this brand new car and now it's just terrible. And and I hate the idea that I have to drive around like this. And he's like, we're going to go get it fixed. <laughs> you know? And I was like, oh, like we can do that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, we can do that. And I was already married when that came, you know, so I was like 27 or 28 years old. And it just didn't even occur to me to get it fixed. You know, it didn't occur to me that that was even a possibility. Because we were also very poor, you know, because of the alcohol and the drugs. And and then there was a period of time in my life when I was a homeless kid, you know. So I missed some of that stuff, you know. And it, and as I went through my life, I was like, oh, okay, I get it. <laughs> you know? I've had similar instances like that where, where um, you know, definitely not as uh, profound and heart melting, but more like dumb stuff where coming out of rehab and, you know, people calling me and saying like, you want a trip to wherever, if you give us your bank account information, I'm like, oh, I did. Okay. You know, like just no, like, that's not, those weren't the types of things that I was, I was focused on surviving the world I was in. I did not know how to survive the world of that everyone else was in. And so it was, there was that transition. Why was it so bad? You said, you know, it was bad in Iowa. Why was it so bad when you got to Houston? Well, because they checked out, you know, while they were abusive in Iowa, they made sure we got fed, you know what I mean? And they made sure we had a house and um, they both checked out of that. They didn't check out for my brother and sister, but for me, they did. And I honestly don't know what that's about. It's it continued on through adulthood. And I know it, there's a lot of people out there who go, they liked them better. You know what I mean? But Honestly, it just, they checked out of my life. It's, we started out okay. Um, when we first got here, the abuse kind of went on and then they separated and we moved into an apartment complex. I think both of them moved into the same complex because we would kind of go back and forth. Um, but that's when the drugs and stuff started with my mom. You know, uh, I can remember being like 10 years old, 11 years old, and 
you, you know, the little tennis shoe skates, you probably don't know, you're very, you're young, but they used to have these tennis shoe skates and I was a skater. I loved to skate and I was out skating. And my mom called me up or come and got me and told me to come in. And, and she brought me into the house and said, I, we're going to smoke some pot. And I was like, I, I don't want to do that, you know? And she's like, no, I want you to do it with me. You know, because for your first time, I want you to do it with me. And I'm like, I'm not going to have a first time, you know. And she was like, no, this is what we're going to do. It was me and her and a guy named Kenny that I kind of grew up with, too, and uh, his son. And that was my first experience with drugs. And, like, she never would have done something like that back in Iowa. You know what I mean? Uh, and it took off quite well from there. I, I was never... I never considered myself an addict, but I certainly used drugs as a teenager. So why in in the scenario that, you know, you and your sister and your brother are fairly close in age, how is it possible that they weren't taking care of you, but they were taking care of the other kids? Well, Sherry got pregnant at 13. And so she was gone for a little while. And Robert, my brother, he, my dad just loved him just loved him. So no matter where he went, whether he was drinking or not, he took Robert with him and then Sherry was just gone, you know? Um, but then she was back within a year, like the marriage didn't work. I can't imagine why she was 13, you know, they had to sign papers and stuff. Um, so when they did finally move from that apartment, there was another complex we went to for a little while, but then they both just kind of disappeared. Sherry went with mom, Robert went with dad and I was left to my own devices. Did they say like we're leaving? Um, I don't recall how it took place. I just know that suddenly I didn't have a place to go, you know, that I was doing a lot of couch surfing. Uh, there was a bridge. Pardon me. How old were you when, when this happened? Somewhere. I was 13, I think 13. I dropped out. I, I finished eighth grade. I was trying to get into high school and I had nobody to sign papers. So I couldn't get into high school. I think I did go for a couple of weeks and then they realized it wasn't working, you know, that I didn't have what I needed and I couldn't get it. So I had to drop out of school. I had a job, actually, which is crazy. I was working out at the Houston Intercontinental Airport as a security guard at 14 years old. I know I had a fake ID and stuff. You could do that back in the day. So, yeah. And so they leave. So Sherry goes with mom, Robert goes with dad and you you start couch surfing. You, what does that look like? Well, I, I had some friends, you know, cause in that environment, you always have friends and I have really close friends. You know, I have a girlfriend that I've had for like 48 years. So, but uh, I spent some time under the bridge. I had a boyfriend that I met at the airport uh, who was a little bit older than me, not bad. I don't think I seemed like I was 14 at the time, you know, so I think he was 19. So uh, I stayed with him sometimes. And he was a big influence on me. Like he taught me things. He helped me get a driver's license and stuff like that. Because he was normal, you know. And uh, I didn't really know what normal was. So uh, he's still there at that airport. But um, he really helped me a lot. I can't remember where I was going. I was saying, like, what was it like during that period of time when you didn't have anywhere to go? Yes. Um, yeah, I was couch surfing, doing a lot of that. I'd staying at the boyfriend sometimes or his friend's house, sometimes under the bridge. Uh, there's a bridge in Humble, Texas. It's over the San Jacinto River and underneath there. There's still homeless people there. Uh, so I did that. 
Um, I did find a little girl that I lived with for a long time. She had an uncle who paid rent, so I stayed with her for a while. I think at like 17, I tried to go home. My mom married this other guy, Jerry was his name, and uh, my boyfriend, the one from the airport, uh, maybe it was 16 even. I get the time zones, the time, not zones, the time mix up, you know, the dates, Um, but I went home. Tried to go home out to New Caney is where they were living, and Jerry didn't like me. So he actually tried to shoot me. <laughs> so He tried to shoot you? Yeah, he was an alcoholic, too. So I left. That's when I went and stayed at the boyfriend's friend's house for a while. And then and then I finally got old enough to just do it myself. What Did you have contact with your mom while you were couch surfing? I mean, because you said yeah, I tried to go back. She got married. Like, what was the what was the interaction, the relationship like and, and her what was her using like? Uh, she used to give me these big bottles of black mollies to sell for her. Like so like I did that sometimes. Right. Um, but otherwise not much interaction, uh, didn't know what she was doing. You know, uh, she did come and find me once we were, I was 15 and, um, she came and found me and she uh, said, we're moving to Florida. And I said, I'm not going to Florida. You know, I'm not going to Florida. And she's like, yeah, you are going to Florida. I'm going to have you put in juvenile. Okay. I guess I'm going to Florida. <laughs> you know. So we got in the car headed for Florida from Houston we got about somewhere in Louisiana, the car broke down. We were with this guy that she was going to marry. Corky was his name. And uh, the car broke down. So she told me to go in and like, there was, we were broke. Apparently she didn't have any money. So I had to steal for her. Right. So she's like, if you get in trouble, it won't matter because you're young and they won't do anything to you. So you go in there. I've never stolen anything in my life. I always had this this morality, no matter what, I always had this morality. And so I went in there, I got us something to eat, and then I got out. And uh, we found a truck driver that took us the rest of the way to Florida. And we lived there for probably three or four months, but not for very long. Um, I just hung out with some girls I found and hitchhiked all over Florida. My mom did her thing with Corky and... And then uh, one day I came home, this girl that I had met there taught me to steal. Like she knew how to do it really well. And I'd gone with her and I didn't take anything, but I brought it home. Like she got it for me and I brought it home. And Corky was really upset. He was like, you stole this stuff. And I was like, I didn't didn't steal the stuff. (laughs) And, um, you know, the average 15 year old, right? So, and he got mad and pushed me out the plate window and uh so my mom had him arrested and while he was in jail we took a bus back to texas thank gosh he pushed you through a glass window yeah through the glass big glass in the front of the apartment you know yeah and were you hurt i don't remember being hurt i don't remember a hospital stay or going to the hospital or even an ambulance i don't remember any of that so why do you think that a situation like that, I mean, I, I can add my two cents into it, but like, why do you think a situation like that, you know, there was, sounds like there were so many times where she wasn't protecting you. And then here's a situation where she decides to protect you. You know, what, what do you think that her, and maybe you've talked to her, what, what was going on for her with this stuff? Like why sometimes protect you and other times not? I think she wanted to be a good mom. You know, and, and I think she started out maybe trying to be a good mom, but she was married to an alcoholic who was very abusive and, and she just didn't have a lot of inner strength, you know, as far as 
or inner self-esteem to be able to get out of it. You know, you know, abuse is hard. And um, she just didn't know what to do. And then when she finally did do it, she'd been married and doing since she was 19 years old. So didn't know how to live alone. Yeah, she didn't know how to live alone. And then she finally she got some freedom, didn't know what to do with it. You know, she was a little girl from Iowa, some little town in Iowa. Um, she didn't know what to do with it. She was always proud of me. Like she would say that she'd say, I'm proud of you. You know, you, you're doing good things because I was always making an effort to try and do something more with my life. Always. Right. But she because uh, when I got my GD, she was just ecstatic. You know, um, that was later in life. I was like 21, I think, when I got it. But so old. <laughs> no. So, But I'm sure it, I do know having been a person that graduated. I graduated high school while I was in college, just like just so I could do it. And I do know that feeling of, of, um, you're like, I just, I like, I feel so out of sync. Like in those years, you know, a year or two feels like a long time between, you know, who, the normal age and whatever age you are. Cause I went to, you know, I went back to college a couple years later and I remember I felt so much older than everyone it, 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 at, the, at that time. It feels, you feel that, but you come back and finally you're old enough to do your own thing, which you've pretty much been doing for years. When you come back, you know, 18 ish and, and you're, you're ready to do your own thing. What does that look like? I was trying to think of when I had my, I, I remember getting my own place, you know, um, I've always worked even when I was 13 years old. The first job was the airport. Um, I got fired from the airport because I fell and cracked my head and started crying. And they kind of got the idea that maybe I wasn't as old as I had thought I was, you know? And so they let me go. Cause you cracked your head. I was playing in a wheelchair in that thing and, you know, acting like a 13 year old, right? A 14 year old, but they figured out that I was a kid, you know, and they let me go. And um, and then I went to work at a restaurant. I, I always worked Burger King, uh, two jobs most of the time. Always had a really strong work ethic. And so it didn't take much for me to get my own place once I was eligible to do so. You know, then I was uh, able to do that. And um, I and then I, oh, I, I decided one day, I think I was this, that man that I, the guy that I knew from the airport, well, he broke my heart. <laughs> So one day I decided I couldn't stay in Texas anymore. Plus I was surrounded by drug addicts and alcoholics. All my friends were drug addicts and alcoholics. And I knew that that is not the life I wanted. I don't know why I knew that because it didn't make any sense. I have four siblings. All of them are addicts. You know, there's, I'm both my parents. I just knew I didn't. So I stopped drinking, stopped smoking, stopped doing any kind of drugs when I was 19 years old. 18 years old, maybe. And I, um, I left Texas. I was like, I got to go because I'm not going to get anywhere here. <laughs> okay. So I jumped in my car and uh, there was this kid I, I knew that was going into the military in Kansas. And I drove him to Kansas and dropped him off. And then my sister, my older sister, the one that I didn't see as much, she was in Des Moines, Iowa. So I went to Des Moines and it was real obvious, real fast. That wasn't a good show. So stayed in Des Moines for about six months. And then I drove to Denver where my dad was. And at this point, he was married to a lady that was really nice. 
like she was really nice. Marla was her name. And she was my stepmom and I loved her. She was awesome. But uh, I drove to Denver and uh, that's where I kind of had my own place there and stuff. Uh, but then I decided to go to Job Corps. I, I was trying to, I had this little, another boyfriend and I, and I was trying to find a job. I had, for whatever reason, I didn't want to do what I was doing. And I was trying to find a job. I folded up a little tiny piece of paper out of the newspaper with the job I was going to seek. And on the back side of that was Job Corps. So instead of going to the interview, I went down to the building where the Job Corps was. And then they said, they told me about the program. And I was like, yeah, I want to do this. And they said, no, you can't do it today. You have to come back if you want to do it. Because we can't sign you up the day you come in. Okay, I'll see you in the morning. <laughs> so I went back the next day, signed up, was gone in two weeks. And he was like, what's going on? You know, but I was like, no, I'm out of here. I've got to do something more. And so they sent me to Utah and I went to Job Corps for, I don't know, a year and a half. For people who don't know what Job Corps is, can you explain that? Um, it's a place for, it's a it's a place for teens. You have to be like, I think 16 and they go all the way to 20. 23 and you go there and they train you you can get a GED you can get um I got my GED there I got my CNA certification there I got my EMT certification there and it was the first my first touch with real education you know and I loved it I, I loved it um they wanted to send me to nursing school but I had had enough <laughs> it out because it wasn't the best place in the world you know it was good at the time it's it was good you know but there was a lot going on there because some kids would get sent there instead of going to juvenile right so there were lots of little criminals there too so they housed you and they gave you work and they gave you education so it's almost like boarding school yeah except for older kids you know like because some of them were 22 23 I left there in 88 or 87, 88. I was, and uh, my boyfriend at the time followed me to Texas and I actually married him and had two kids with him. So met him in Job Corps. I wasn't married very long. He was an alcoholic. (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) Did you know? Well, I mean, so what's interesting about that though, is that a lot of people, so a lot of people, you and I have been doing this a long time. So we, we know, but a lot of people don't know how it's possible that you can grow up in a household with something you abhor, something that caused you (laughs) deep pain and loathing. And then you can choose that in your partner. Like they don't, and, and people, I understand why it doesn't make sense. I've just been doing, you know, I've been around long enough to understand it. You, can you speak to that of like, for the people who don't understand, like you had an alcoholic father and then, you know, mom became drug addicted. Why on earth would you marry an alcoholic? How does that even happen? Well, how I explain that to some of my clients actually is that we go with what we know. And that's kind of the simple way, you know, but even though I made much effort to not do that, like I would really go out of my way to try and not do that. It was obvious right away that he had a problem and I just did it anyway. And he, uh, I, I actually was breaking up with him when I got pregnant and decided to marry him for a year. <laughs> we were only together a year. Well, two, long enough to have two children. Like one year was pregnancy, one year married and another pregnancy and then we were done. But um, I, you go with what you know and there's a place of comfort. While that childhood sounds so horrific to everybody else, it's comfortable for me, even though I hated it, (laughs) which 
again, doesn't make any sense, but I knew what to do with it. I wouldn't have known what to do with somebody that didn't beat me or, or go out and drink or, or do any of those things. What would I have done with somebody like that? (laughs) Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, it's Ashley Joe, producer of The Courage to Change, and I wanted to chime in and let you know about our new mobile app, Lion Rock Life. It is now available for download on your phone or tablet from the App Store or the Google Play Store. So here's the download on the app. The app is designed to streamline your online recovery experience, allowing you to view live meetings in progress, join meetings quickly, and build stronger connections in recovery. So whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're in recovery for something other than drugs or alcohol, the Lion Rock Life mobile app has a space for you. On the app, you'll find alternative recovery meetings, and traditional meeting offerings. We have everything from recovery fellowship to community workshops, LGBTQIA+, women's meetings, men's meetings, 12-step meetings, and more. With over 75 meetings on our weekly schedule, you'll find a meeting that meets your individual needs. And with the app, you can personalize your recovery experience join with privacy in mind, and recover with the support of an incredible community. Join us and find inspiration for a lifetime of recovery by downloading the Lion Rock Life mobile app today. If you have questions or need help, simply visit lionrock.life slash mobile dash app. Thanks. It sounds crazy, but it, you know, it is, we repeat what we don't heal. And um, there's a much better alliteration saying for that, that I can't remember, but it's, um, you know, you, you will repeat it and your, your, your father repeat, you know, like in his own way, right. You're being, you know, his mother is chasing you around with the broom. Well, that was probably what she did to him and his siblings and what you experience, and so on and so forth. And it just repeats. And so people, um, you know, hurt people, hurt people. Right. Right. And, and that's, that's just something that I think that is the crux of why it's so important to heal ourselves so that we can stop these intergenerational things that happen. And, and that's why we say like, whatever happened to you is not your fault, but your healing is your responsibility. Right. I think your child, another thing that I always like to say is your childhood, your parents, they're not your destiny. You don't have to be who they are, you know, and if they're great, then that's great. Let that be your destiny. But I chose a long time ago not to be like them. I didn't know what that was going to look like. And I certainly didn't know how long it was going to take, but I knew I didn't want it. So when you had children, um, so how old were you when your, your kids were born? Um, Eddie was, I was 23 and Ethan, I was 24. I knew I didn't want children. I didn't want children and they know that. So it's not, a, it's not if they hear it, it's not, but uh, it, it, I was on birth control, both of them. And I got pregnant. I just had no desire to have children. And after I had them, of course I wanted them. Yeah. Yeah. When you had, I, you know, so 
from my perspective, and of course, people on this podcast have heard me talk about this, that I had done, you know, I was 10 years sober when my kids were born. I had done so much work, so much childhood work. And I had, you know, I felt really wrapped up about a lot of things. And then I had kids and all of it was, came back, you know, and, and all this stuff that stuff that I either thought I had wrapped up or I had wrapped up came back or stuff I had never even thought about. I think that happens for a lot of mothers who, um, have, you know, stuff in their childhood, I would imagine that stuff came up for you with the kids and maybe the alcoholism or things with the husband boyfriend didn't matter before. Now you have kids and now they bother you because you have kids. Did any of that happen? Yeah, sure. I mean, I knew that I didn't want to abuse my children. I knew that. Right. But again, I didn't know what that looked like. So I was very much a screamer for the first few years, you know, and I had to figure that out because I knew that wasn't good for him. And with regard to being with an alcoholic, that is why I left their father right away. You know, and I loved him. He was a good guy. He just was an addict. And uh, I think that was my first bout with he was a good guy. He just was an addict. Because to be honest with you, my father wasn't a good guy. He was an addict and a bad guy. And that does happen too, you know. But Ed and I have been, Ed Sr. Um, and I were friends forever until he died. He he actually just passed away a couple months ago from an overdose. So he uh, took it all the way to the end, yeah. So he never did get clean, you know. I mean, he did bouts of it, but not, not always. Not forever, I guess. Anyway, um, where was I going with that? He, so yes, it touched me throughout. I feel like with Eddie and Ethan, I didn't do as well as I had done with Alta. That's my daughter. She's 25 because I had to learn and I had to heal. And I didn't know I needed to do that until I started, I started seeing therapists. And honestly, I just started talking about it. I started talking about it to anybody that would listen, which probably wasn't the healthiest way to do it, but it was like, okay, we need to figure this out. You know, help me figure this out. And every time something would come up, I'd be like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Now I got this. I had to go buy a car one time and I didn't have a clue how to do that. Nobody taught me. Another boyfriend helped me do that. It sounds like I go through a lot of boyfriends. I do not. Okay. <laughs> but Lynette, I am not here to judge that. No way, no how. <laughs> but he taught me how to do that. We're still friends today. I'm kind of a people gatherer. Once you're my friend, you're never not my friend. Um, so, but uh, yeah, he taught me how to do that. And so there were just little things along the way. But every time I got in a situation where I knew there was an alcoholic or somebody involved with drugs or alcohol, I got out almost immediately. And then I met my second husband. I've been married three times. My second husband wasn't an alcoholic. I married, he was a Mormon. He was a Mormon because he didn't smoke. He didn't drink. He didn't cuss. He didn't do nothing. I found him. Okay. I mean, I get it. I get it. If you're like, if you grew up the way you grow up and you're like, I got to find a sure thing. I got to find me someone who's definitely, you, you, you go straight to the Mormon church. I get that. But, but he was a narcissist. Okay. So he might as well have been an alcoholic. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> But you tried, you get an A for effort. You really, you really put in, you were like, if I'm going to go for it, I'm going to go hard in the paint. Yeah. You know, that's the, the guarantee. I stuck it out for like 17 years, 16, 17, 17 years. Oh dear Lord. Yeah. So I tried. I really tried for the second one. And then I was married the third time to a recovering alcoholic and he's the nicest guy. He's He's still a good guy. We, we still talk all the time. I just didn't want to be married anymore. The second husband is that 
your fa- your daughter's father? Yeah. And what's the age difference between her and her brothers? Eddie and Ethan are 32 and 33 and Alta's 25. And so you tried a long time with that. You know, I've, I've had a bunch of women on here come on um, and talk about recovering from a narcissist relationship. And it's very true. I mean, it, it is, is equally as traumatic um, if, you know, in some ways the alcoholism and the drug addiction is easier because it's easier to see yeah. and the narcissism, you know, there's a lot of gaslighting and there's a lot of, you know, like what's wrong with me and, and that kind of thing. So what, what was that, you know, the 17 years, that's a long period of your life. What was going on through that period for you? I was so excited to find him, you know, like I was so excited and he had four children. His ex-wife had left and dumped the kids and, and they were, they were two, one, two, five and six. And I had two children. They were four and five. We had six children under seven years old. And then we went and had another one. <laughs> you Brady know, so, bunch. Yes. And, and I was so excited. And the first few years was okay. Cause he spent a lot of time at work. I was raising kids. Um, and this is what I wanted. Normal. I looked for normal my whole life. This was normal. Went to church, did everything, you know, it was great. Um, But then things started to happen, like the kids started to get a little older and have minds of their own. And the four of them, his four, were dealing with a lot of mental illness because of their mother. And, you know, she had done some things to them. And and it was like all of a sudden there was this mess, you know, it was just messy. And uh, and I have a son that's on the spectrum. And so that added to the mess, you know, even though it was all okay. It was messy. And I was trying to keep normal and I couldn't keep normal. <laughs> you know. Plus he was blaming me for everything. You know, any mistake, any one of his children made, even today, after many years of divorce, are, it's my fault. I hear about it through the grapevine. So it's like always going to be my fault. So I just, I just, it was a mess. And I tried like for a long time, but coming out of it, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. Really? Yeah. Like, because I put together a vision of the future that I wasn't ever going to get. I always say the worst thing about a divorce is not losing the person, it's losing the dream. Because I had this dream of old age and rocking chairs and grandkids, lots of them. And and um, I don't have a lot of contact with his four because the minute I left and got out, he turned them on me. So two of them still come around, but two of them don't. And um and then my daughter and I struggle because of that too. So your daughter, you and your daughter struggle because of you ending the marriage. Uh, no, just some. He talks bad about me a lot, you know. And she was ten years old when her or not ten. No, she was. Anyway, I, I get the dates mixed up, but she uh, was. She just got a lot of bad info. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it was constant and she would come home and I put her in therapy. She was in therapy for a long time. We did it together, but uh, we still struggle. So we didn't for a long time. We were really, really close. But when she got married, it started. And I don't know what that's about. I haven't figured it all out yet, but she still talks to her dad, which she didn't for a long time. So I'm not sure. Not sure what that's about. Does she live nearby? No, she's in Colorado. Okay. Okay. So when you left, did you leave the Mormon church as well? Uh, You don't do that. (laughs) Uh, It's not that I've left the Mormon church. I just don't go. 
Okay. Okay. I see. <laughs> I don't know how that works, but yes. Yes. And, uh, and so during that time, were you raising kids? Did you have, you know, I know school ends up being a big part of your life. Was that, were you working as an EMT, any of the things that you learned in job corps? I used the CNA for a while, thought I wanted to be a nurse, tried to go to school, but I was married. I was dealing with Ed at the time and couldn't do it. Um, so I stopped and just didn't do anything for like 20 years. I didn't go to college till I was 40. So, and I didn't know that I could, I really didn't heal a lot. I try to think about like what took me so long to get there. And honestly, I think I just had to get over my childhood. You know, it's kind of like what you said about coming out of recovery, you know, out of a treatment, you know, it's like I had to get through some things before I could realize that I was first of all smart enough to go and have the ability to even know what to do. Nobody in my family had ever gone to college. So it was like, I took Michael, that was my oldest stepson when he was 18. I took him down to the local community college in Nebraska, in Omaha, Nebraska, because that's where we lived at the time. And uh, I had no idea what I was doing, but I was going to get him signed up, right? So went in there, spoke to an advisor, and signed him up. It took like 45 minutes. I was like, oh my gosh, this is so freaking easy. So the next day, I went back up and signed myself up. <laughs> so I was like, oh, wow, I could do this, you know. But then I took an English like 101 at the Metro Community College and thought, there's, I don't even know how to write. I, I, don't, I, was, I dropped out of school in eighth grade, you know. So, but I... I had always read lots and lots and lots and lots of books, you know, and I was a pretty good writer. And so I'm not a good speller. Like if you had to spell something it, and it had to save my life, I'd not live because I can't spell. And, and uh, my supervisor knows that. So, <laughs> but anyway, so I went to this English class and, and I, I remember she made us write like right there, you know, and turn it in. And I got an A on it. And that was, that was it for me. I was like, oh. Well, okay, <laughs> I can do this, but I didn't do it. I spent seven years at the community college <laughs> going from class to class. Oh, I just want to take this. Oh, oh I'm going to take this, you know, <laughs> but that is doing it right. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, that is doing it. Like you were educated. I mean, most of seven years. Yeah, that was that was high school. Yeah. Yeah. They came to me. I, I met with an advisor and she's like, you just got to You got it graduate just wiped me off wiped me up I was like graduate like get a degree yeah you can get a degree and I'm like you're kidding like really guys are gonna give me a degree yeah and I said okay what do I gotta do and she said what do you want to be you know you've got all this and this and that I said I I was really liking the, the addiction stuff and I wasn't sure I wanted to be an addiction counselor because I didn't really like addicts, you know, so fair at the time, you know, and, but I really had learned a lot about the empathy and, and understanding where they were coming from. And, but I was more doing social work at the time, but that time I was working in the field of social work and juvenile probation and stuff. And, and so uh, I was like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do this licensure, this addictions licensure thing. And I had to take three more semesters and, uh, and I got my, uh, associates in applied sciences with a licensure for um, addictions. So, how old were you when you got that? Forty-seven. Yep, like right in there. Because I, or maybe forty-six. It might have been six years. So, well, I think two thousand eleven. And so, uh, and then it occurred to me that if I could get an associate's degree, maybe 
I could get a bachelor's degree. <laughs> and that's what I did. I went and signed up at Bellevue and 16 months later, I had a bachelor's. It was crazy. And then I was like, oh my gosh, I really, I might get a master's. And now I sit and think about a doctorate, but don't want to spend the money. Okay. <laughs> when you decided to get, so you get, go and you get that bachelor's degree. I, I mean, I know what it felt like for me to get a bachelor's degree to, you know, to graduate from a good school with a bachelor's degree. I sobbed like a baby. I mean, I was, it was not because no one in my family had ever, and it was quite the opposite of my family. Everybody in my family was extremely educated, but I couldn't show up for anything. Like I couldn't, for me, it was like, I couldn't attend, <laughs> you know, like, you know, like I didn't, I knew I was smart enough to do it. I just didn't know if I could get myself to the same place at the same time, every single day and manage to like, not blow it up. And so I, I can only given that, and, and, and for me coming up on a, a graduation for my master's, I can only imagine what that felt like for you receiving that. It was huge. The associates was bigger. I feel like the associates was bigger um, just because it was the very first thing I'd ever completed, you know, like that. I mean, yeah, I had the GD and the CNA and all that stuff, but this degree, like something I could put on the wall, you know, and it was crazy. And I missed the graduation ceremony because my husband didn't give me the paperwork, the one that is our system. <laughs> so, or no, maybe it wasn't even, I don't know. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But I didn't get to go to the graduation ceremony, but I still was really happy to have it. And, and then the bachelor's degree was just, yeah, it was huge. It was like, oh, wow, like I have two. I have two. <laughs> you know? yeah, I didn't but think I could get, get one. <laughs> I couldn't, yeah, I didn't think I was smart enough to get one. I couldn't get anybody to go, though. That was the thing. My, I couldn't get anybody to go to graduate. Called my dad both times. Please come. Please come. Wouldn't do it. No, that's that's a waste of time. Waste of money. Nope, not doing it. Couldn't do it. My sister called me. You're so stupid. I can't believe you spent all that money on education. Okay, whatever you got to say. I'm, I'm a different person for it, so go for it. I don't care. <laughs> you know? um, that that's going to be thing. painful. Yeah, it sucked. At first, I was like, yeah, it doesn't matter. But no, it sucked. Yeah, so, but it's okay. I had my sons at my master's degree. My sons were there with me. And uh, both my, or my son, Eddie, hasn't gone to college, but Ethan has. He's, he's not going right now, but, and that's a change. That's changing the cycle. And that's what I wanted to do. So, um, and they both went to the bachelor's too. As a matter of fact, I think Alta was at the bachelor's as well. So. And the... What made you decide to get your master's? Everybody else was doing it. <laughs> there you go. Like all the people I went to school with, they were going on. And I thought, well, you know. all the people you went to school, I will say, I think you should give yourself more credit because all the people you were growing up with and all the people that you lived around for many, many years were doing things that you decided you didn't want to do or using and all that. So for someone who, you know, peer pressure, I was going to say, oh, peer pressure, I'll do it. But for you, peer pressure hasn't always been a huge motivator. No, it's it's actually been the opposite. Yeah. If you're, because the funny part is I moved back to Texas and all those people are still using drugs. You know, um, I came home because I wasn't comfortable where I was. I thought last time I've been, I was really comfortable was back home, you know. And I remember telling the kids because they lived in Omaha Alta was already married and gone. And I said, I'm going 
back home. And they're like, this is home. Well, that's where I raised them was in Omaha. So it was home for them, but it wasn't for me. Um, so I came back and now one of them's here. I'd like to get the others, but I can't, you know, I can't make them move. So, but uh, you start, you said, I forgot the question that you just asked. Oh, you, I said that you, I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit because peer pressure wasn't, you know, you said, I said, what made you go to to you get your master's you said everyone else was doing it and I was you know I was like okay so peer pressure but but it wasn't in in you're not susceptible the same way yeah I just I, I wanted to just keep going I I've always wanted more you know even back when I was little like I can remember being five six seven eight years old and thinking there's more this is different. I'm different. I'm not going to be like this. And it's always been that way. Always. My friends, my relatives, I've always thought I was, I I would do things like go to the opera because I wanted to experience it or I'd go to a ballet. And actually I love them. I, if you meet me, I look like I'm from the country, you know, and I don't look like the person that would go to those things, but I love them. I love them. And uh, I love all that stuff. I love art and music and, but I also love just living out in the country with the fires and the trees and <laughs> stuff too, and the tractors. And um, so, uh, yeah, no, I guess I did say, you know, everybody else was doing it. And that is true. Like I had friends that I was in my bachelor's with that were going on. Um, they were younger than me. And, but uh, part of that was, yeah, okay, let's do it. Come on, let's all go, you know? And uh, I thought, well, I can do it. I know I can do it because I've already done it twice. And uh, I always say, you don't have to be really smart to get a master's degree. You just have to be dedicated. <laughs> okay, so. As someone who's about to finish, I, that's very true. You know, with you, you've been through so much, right? And and so you got that master's degree and you became, you became a therapist and a, a mental health clinician and, and did everything that, that that entails, which is quite a significant amount uh, for people who don't know. You know, it's funny. I, I So recently there's, and I've talked about this in a couple other episodes, but there's, do you remember the singer Jewel? She was like a country folk singer in the nineties. And she did a, an interview recently and she grew up living homesteading in Alaska and very similar. A lot of kids, not great, you know, education, abuse, she leaves, she's homeless, like literally, like very, very similar to your story and kind of everyone around her stayed right. And they stayed in the same place. And she uh, talks about, and her mom took off and she talks about, she talked about in this recent interview, which is very, very good. Um, and I highly recommend it to anyone. And I think you would relate to it a lot. She talks about this inner sense that she needed more, that there was something more out there. Now, she did not have a reason, a real reason to believe that there was anything more, as neither did you. And like, there was no real good reason why she would believe that there was much more out there, but there was something inside of her that believed and saw something that no matter what evidence on a day-to-day basis, life and the world presented to you, you were like, no, I, I, there's still more. And I find it really remarkable. People like this, like you, like, like Jewel, like these people who have these stories where there isn't really any great evidence for them that there's going to be 
something better for them out there, but they feel it. And everyone else around them does not and stays in that same cycle. And they go out and they create a new pair. They, 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 they find the paradigm shift and they go out and they create this new world. And I think it's really incredible. I don't relate to it in the sense that for, I mean, for me, it was actually quite the opposite, but I think it's really incredible. Like how does someone who is surrounded by addiction surrounded by who, who lives under a bridge, who couch surface, who where it was so easy. It was so, it would have been so natural to go straight to that, that you you, like, I just can't go to that. I just know that there's something different. I just want to be something different. And, and for you to be willing to pursue it, you know, if, if all of that stuff hadn't held you back, you could have been held back by saying, well, I'm, I can't go back to school now. People don't restart a career or life now and, and all those things. And, and I just think it's really amazing that, and really important for you to be telling your story because people often think, well, I'm this age or this happened or whatever it is. I can't do that. And that is a lie that we tell ourselves. Yeah, I mean, I think you, I think I, I see that on Facebook a lot. Like, oh, you know, they have those little memes that say things like, what would you tell your younger self? And a lot of them say, go to college. And I say, go now. My thing is, I always say, what are you going to be doing 10 years from now? How old are you going to be? And they say, like, oh, 55. To, if you go to college, how old are you going to be 10 years from now? And they're like, what? And I'm like, you're going to be 55 either way. You might as well go. You know, so because then you'll have what you wanted. Um, it was hard to start at 40. I was a butcher before I was a counselor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and I mean, I had moved out of the butcher thing because I had gotten pregnant. I couldn't stand the smells, but only like by a year or so, a year or two. And then I was like, oh, yeah, this is what I really want to do. Because uh, I got involved with social services, doing some transporting and things like that, and um, and and I was like, oh, and and I could do it for a while without an education, but I couldn't keep doing it. If I wanted to keep doing it, I had to get it. So that played into when I went there. I was like, oh, I can do this. I can do this. But I think you don't have to be 25 to go to college. You can do it at 40, and you can do it even if you think you can't, because it's like I said, and it is kind of a joke, you know, you do have to be intelligent, of course, you know, to go to school, but, but not super. And, you know, you know, whether, no matter how smart you think you are, if you are smart enough to go down and sign up, you can do it. You know, I struggled through algebra. College algebra is awful. It's awful. Okay. So I took it and dropped it because I wasn't going to bring my GPA down, you know. And so I was like, damn it, I have to get this, you know. Finally, I changed over to business math and that I understood. Give me a big, give me a checkbook. I'm good. And so you just find a way, you know, no matter what it is. Statistics, never thought I'd pass it. Oh, I got an A. Like, who would have thought? I can't tell you what I learned in there, but I can tell you I got through it because all you have to do is be dedicated to do the work and you can do it no matter who you are. Unless you actually have like a learning disability, you can do it. And even then you can do it. You just have to get the help because they offer it. So, uh, yeah, I agree with you. There's, you know, a lot of people don't want to try because they're afraid of how late it is in life or, or you know, that they're not smart enough. Um, but that all comes from your history, it comes from where you came from. You have to think about where you are right now. 
there's a, somebody told me, I don't remember who it was, be where your feet are. Yes. Yep. <laughs> so my feet are right here and I'm smart and I can do this. And if I wanted to, I could have a doctorate. I know I could do it. Although sometimes in my head I go, you can't do a dissertation. You can't do that. I could do that. I did all this, but I just don't know to spend the money. But the, the point is you can do whatever you want to do. And your parents are not your destiny. They are not. I I don't want to say I proved that, but I proved that. Yeah, you did. You absolutely proved that. And what has it been like counseling, you know, addicts, right? We talk, you know, there's like, oh, I'm not sure I like these people, but obviously you like them enough to hang out with them eight hours a day. So, uh, and work with them. And um, so what, what has it, how, what has having this job taught you that you didn't know? I really like addicts. No, I really did have a distaste for that before, you know, because of where I grew up. And and sometimes and certain people, I tell them, look, I didn't used to, you know, I didn't used to like people that were addicted. I thought they were weak and, and had low morals and, you know, everything that the world tells us that addicts are. And I know now that that's just not true. Some of the best people I've ever met are addicted you know it's like that would be like saying all diabetics are awful you know they're terrible people it's just not true you know you don't get to control that um and so if you are you know unlucky enough to get addiction um that that doesn't mean that you're a bad person it just means you have an addiction and it took me a long time to figure that out for myself just for my family because honestly I don't have a lot of contact with most of my family there's my little brother and I are friends um but my sister is here in town and I don't speak to her and I have an older sister that's missing well she's not missing she's using she talks to me when she's not using (laughs) so you know and then an older brother that's an alcoholic but And I don't have a lot of contact with them, but it's not because they're addicts, because of the way they act towards me. Um, Because I thought about that a lot because people say, well, okay, so if you have so much empathy for addicts, how come you're not friends with your siblings, you know? Um, But there's a lot of history there. So, I mean, you were friends with your ex-husband till the day he died and he overdosed. So that and never, you know, had long-term sobriety. So, I mean, that that's I've heard you say several times that there are people in your life who you've seen or your father, who you've stayed talking to, you know, I mean, even, uh, even if it's not that much, I mean, you've been willing to stay. So I I think that that's probably not. Yeah, no, uh, that's what I was going to say. Ed and I, um, I I loved Ed. He was my friend and I have to be careful talking about Ed because it makes me want to cry because he was the boy's father, you know, and uh, he tried, but uh, we stayed friends. Yeah. So it wasn't its behavior. It's not, what have you learned working with people? You know, so it's most counselors, they work, they tend to have contact with people in their, you know, in their geographic area. Right. And, and working as a counselor, you've been able to work with people from all over the world. What has that, has that taught you something different or brought different things to light for you that maybe working with people just in, you know, in your geographic area might not have. It's funny. And besides (laughs) I I was going to make a joke and say, yeah, don't talk about politics. Yeah. That's what it's on because everybody thinks differently all over the United States. Right. But no, but otherwise it's so funny how similar everybody is in that way. It's such proof that it's a disease 
because they all do the same things. You know, they they come into the, the room and they talk about what they were doing. They were hiding the alcohol. They were lying to their wife or their husband. They were doing and they all go, like, wow, really? You did that too? And then I'm like, it's and they're one's in Pennsylvania and the other one's in southern Florida, you know, or wherever. And it's and they have different backgrounds and different, different colors, they're different sizes, they're different, they're different everything, and they still are doing the same stuff with a different accent, <laughs> you know. So and a different political view, right? So, but you know, I'm just joking. But but yeah, it it's that's the thing that I've learned is that it's 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 driven home the point that it is a disease and that it's uh and that whether you think you're unique or not you're probably not like you know with regard to addiction it's it's if you see it working for somebody else and somebody else is getting clean and that's working good chance it'll work for you because you have the same disease you know and it looks very much the same and that's that's what I say about treatment. Treatment is so important. It's in group. And these are the, this is so important because it works. It works. We've seen it work hundreds of times and it'll work for you. If you live in Pennsylvania, it'll work for you. If you live in Seattle, it'll work for you in Florida and work for you in Texas. If you do, if you do it the way you're supposed to do it. But the minute you start thinking you're different from the guy in Pennsylvania, it might not work, you know, so that's what I learned that it, it it's it's a disease and it's all the same. Right. Terminal uniqueness is what they say. Yeah. <laughs> Terminally unique. Yeah. I mean, that was that was uh, I, I remember feel at times feeling sad that I was term that that I wasn't terminally unique and other times feeling really grateful I wasn't term term. Oh, my gosh. I can't even say that name. Terminally unique. And you know, it's interesting, like that you, you go back and forth between it. And I think it's really amazing. I mean, all, all the things that, that you've been through and, and how in your willingness to dedicate your life to helping people, um, who've hurt you, uh, with a disease that has hurt you rather, and to talk about it. And, you know, I mean, as my mom did the podcast a couple of weeks ago and she's so cute, she was like, well, um, cause I was saying, you know, how does it feel to have your, you know, husband and daughter going to this? And she said, well, I just didn't really understand why you wanted to take why you know, why you guys wanted to take the most painful thing about our lives and make it into an everyday conversation, you know? And I mean, fair, you know, I think that it, you can care about the cause, you can support the cause without, without being embedded in it. And it's like that next level, but you have a real understanding from both sides, which is really, really helpful because, you know, a lot of these people, when they come into treatment, they're like, why is my daughter saying, you know, I've been sober a month. Why doesn't she believe me that I'm fixed? You know, and you have the perspective of like, are you kidding? You know, <laughs> how many times have you been sober a month? Like how many, you know, and, and, and you have all these perspectives that, that are really valuable to our community and, and helping people. And I, I just love that. And I, and I love that you are able to say, Look, I went back to school at this age. I got a job at this age. I, you know, I was a butcher before I was a therapist. You should, I mean, which is a great threat, actually. I really like that. It's a natural progression. It really is. It really is. It's like, okay, here's the deal. I can, we can either talk this out and I can help you work through this and with cognitive behavioral therapy, or 
I can quarter you and sell you on the black market. You know, it's like either way, either way it's getting handled. So your choice, pick, pick a profession. What is it that you wish that you could convey to people who don't understand who, who haven't experienced the desire to drown themselves in drugs and alcohol and are still really angry and hurt by their loved ones and really just not getting it. What is something that you would tell them? I guess the first thing I would say is educate yourself and and I'm not selling lion rock or anything, but they have a program for families and it's good because what you don't know, some of the stuff you're doing is hurting your addict more than it's helping them. You know, I hear this so often in group, my wife, you know, she did this. Like what kind of things? Like she's accusing me every day and she's, you know, won't let me go out of the house and she, or, you know, and I get it that, that you don't trust that person. I get it. But the more you do that stuff isn't going to stop them from drinking. If they want to drink, they're going to drink. You can't stop them. They have to stop themselves. And all that nagging and all that stuff and not knowing and the distrust, it's, I know why it's there. I know why it's there. But somehow you have to educate yourself and go, you have to be able to to back away from it and say, okay, I'm going to wait and see what happens here. I'm going to be empathetic. I'm going to be supportive. And we're going to see where it goes. And if you have to check yourself out, then you have to do that. You know, if you can't take it anymore, then you have to do that. But to sit and nag and go at them and keep coming isn't going to help. If anything, it's going to hurt. Well, it's really about, it's really about control and resentment, right? It's like, it, I had this experience um, in a, a relationship with, with infidelity. I dated a guy who was chronically unfaithful. And, um, and I remember trying, I mean, I did the craziest things to try. Like, you know, I I fully crazy ex-girlfriend right here, like earned my badge. And, um, and I remember the moment where I was like, oh, it doesn't matter what I do. Like the, the, it doesn't matter what I do. If the, if a person wants to be unfaithful, they're going to be unfaithful. And I remember coming out of that. And now with my, my husband, we joke about it because with my husband, you know, he's only known me as completely hands-off. I don't, I am not jealous. I do not. I, I just, I just, I don't know that, that experience of doing everything to try to control the person. And believe it or not, this is the same with alcoholism. Like you can do whatever, if someone wants to drink or if someone wants to cheat or if someone insert, whatever it is, they are going to do that. And you can be, I was creative. I mean, I was good. I had to, you know, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And so there's this almost it's, I experienced this and, and that there was a freedom. There's a freedom of, of saying like, I can't control you and whatever you're going to do. And I'm just going to choose to trust you. And if you burn me, you burn me. And then I have to make my decisions from there. And I get, you know, when you have children and when you have a whole life built on an infrastructure together, it's super terrifying. I think that's, that's the part where wives or, you know, whoever it's like, I'm afraid that you are going to burn down the life that we have built for our children and our family and that kind of thing. And, but unfortunately the vice grip 
and you can speak to this, and it doesn't stop people. No, I tried to move Ed across the country. I moved him from Kansas to Texas to get him to quit doing the geological cure doesn't work. Geographical, sorry, geographical cure does not work. You know, you can't fix them; they have to fix themselves. And and no matter how what you do, no matter what you say, it's not going to happen. That's why I say educate yourself, get yourself some support. It doesn't have to be AA or Al-Anon or whatever, but find. Find something because if you need to say it and it doesn't probably need to be said to them and you need to talk to somebody else, you know, but I, the other part of that is I tell my people in my group, I'm like, don't your wife, your husband, your partner can be your support. They can say, yay, you're doing such a good job. Look at you go. You've got 15 days, whatever that is. But looking to them to be your sole support is also not a good idea. I have this little thing I do where I say, if you're driving down the street in a car, right, and your car, you you run into somebody with your car and they fall onto the ground and your bumper falls down there with them, are you going to get out of the car and say, hey, can, can you get up and help me put this bumper back on my car? And they're going to look like you're stupid. And that to me is what you're doing when you ask your family to help you stay sober. It's like, I know I've been running you over for the last 15 years, but if you could please get up and help me, that would be great. Well, the first thing they're going to do is defend themselves. Like if you say to them, hey, you know, I really am struggling to stay clean today or whatever the words are, their thoughts are not going to be, yeah, let's go have some coffee and talk about it. They're going to be like, what the hell's wrong with you? You're trying to destroy our life. <laughs> so, what the fuck? Yeah. You, yeah. Like how... <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I get it too. I mean, I'm married to a recovering alcoholic and it's so interesting how many times we have had conversations where we're like, we get what's going on, but we don't care because you know what? It affects us and we're pissed about it. And what, you know, like I can understand it till the cows come home, but as long as it's my husband in my house and my, it's threatening my security. I don't care because it's because my I'm gripped by my fear. Right. You're you're looking out for self, which is what you're supposed to do. You know, so like, yeah. So the wife is like, "Ah, what the hell's wrong with you? You're destroying us. You're going to make our children addict, whatever, you know. And so you don't go to your wife and say those things. You go to your sponsor and say those things. You go to your mentor, your counselor, your friend. You don't go to the person you've been running over with your car for the last 15 years because they're just not going to do it. They can cheer you on and they can be supportive, but they cannot be your sole support. You need something outside of that. Yeah, it's really important. I'm so grateful for your time and you being willing to share your story. I know it's not easy. And um, when when we talk about the stuff, it brings it always brings up sad times in our life. And especially when we've done the work, you know, it's interesting is like for people who've actually done the work, it's sometimes harder because they can actually feel the sadness for the little kid that they're describing. Whereas people who haven't done the work, it's just a story that they're disconnected from. So I can see that, you know, you feel that work and, and that you're connected to it. And I, I really appreciate that. And, and I appreciate the work you do. You have, you're on the front lines of, not only, you know, day in, day out treatment in a program, but also in a country that has an epidemic and that has not just a, 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 you know, a substance problem, but a stigma problem where we are shaming people 
into into silence and into unwillingness to get help and you are helping us you are doing your day in day out work makes a difference in that and i'm just really grateful i know how hard the job you have is and and i know how much work it takes to detox from the stories that you hear and and uh, it's really incredible so thank you thank you i'm i'm really grateful to have it to be able to do it so I think it's um, it's wonderful to be able to help people, even if I never see the results. It's it's okay because I know I think you know if you get somebody that comes and maybe they don't make it through the program, I know that they took away something, you know, and maybe they'll get it for the next one. Yep, took me a lot of programs and I uh, took away stuff from every one of them. So it's definitely, that's definitely real. And I just want to mention a couple things we talked about um, in terms of support for families. We talked about their options that are out there. There's Al-Anon, there's Families Anonymous, Codependence Anonymous, Adult Children of Alcoholics. So those are your 12-step options. There are also, there's also family programs. Lion Rock Recovery has a uh, family intensive once a week therapy group with other family members that allows you to talk and come up with, you know, individualized plans that help you. What other um, family tools are out there aside from individual therapy? Do, do you know of any other that I haven't named? You named a lot of them. Um, yeah, I think that's great. I think that's, that's, again, off the top of my head, that's, I can't think of anymore. I know that there's uh, She Recovers, which is another one, Celebrate Recovery, which is a Christian-based life ring. Those are some, I don't know what their family programs look like, I know, but I do know that they, She Recovers definitely has support outside just straight addiction, but I do like to put those out there for people, reach out and ask for help, ask for support. Yeah, and there's so many apps. If you just get on your phone and and put in addiction recovery or or family addiction, you know, I'm sure you will find so many things. There's so many resources. That is the best part about being an addict today is that there's so much out there, so much help and so much support. I think that's the biggest thing as a family member of an addict is finding someone that you can rely on, someone that, that is supportive of you, you know, instead of, I don't know. You spend so much time trying to live through it, you know, that you got to have somebody you can talk to that you can say anything to and they won't judge you. And, you know, I was thinking about it and you said, and I know we're wrapping up, but you said, what is the like thing you could tell a family? The other thing that I would say is you can't shame them or guilt them into recovery. You know, because we so badly want them to be clean that we try to make them feel bad, you know, and making them feel bad is like they already feel bad. They already feel bad. They already feel shame. They already feel guilt. The only thing you might do with that is make them drink or do drugs more because of that's part of why they're doing it. So that's probably a big, big factor. I tried that, by the way, and it does not work. I've tried it too. It's great advice because it's it feels like we'll make them feel badly for their behavior and then they'll stop the behavior because they're a good person, they're a feeling person. But unfortunately, addiction in the brain, the way that it works in the brain, the neurology of it doesn't work that way, which is why it's so important, as you said, to get the education around it. And there are places that offer that to really understand the brain science alongside some of the other stuff that you're dealing with, because it'll make more sense. When you understand the brain science, you can understand why shaming doesn't work. 
Right. And there's some great videos out there for that, too. If you go into YouTube and Google, or I don't know how that works, but you go into YouTube and put something in there, brain science behind addiction, or and you can realize that it doesn't, if it was a moral problem, then guilting them and shaming them would work, but it's not. So I think one thing I always say to people is, look, we're talking about an addiction. You know, the bond between a mother and her child is so strong. Usually, you know, we have a, an epidemic of, of fatherlessness, household, you know, fatherless households, not motherless households. You know, you know, when a mother leaves her children or her child that that is an that is an abnormal circle. Something is really, really wrong when you described, you know, mom leaving four kids or when, you know, there's something really wrong when a mom bails out on her kids. It's not normal. And the reason is that that tether is so strong. So when you have a disease that is causing mothers to separate from their children, to have their children taken from them and not be able to get them back because they can't you know, comply with the regulations or the requirements, rather not regulations, requirements to get them back, you know that you have something that is, that can break the bonds of, you know, of a mother and her child that can be stronger than the desire to parent your child uh, for a mother, which is the strongest, you know, the strongest tether on the planet in every species everywhere. Yeah. And you, and this does this overpowers that. Right. I worked for CPS for a while and I would hear it all the time. Oh, she just doesn't love her children enough. It's so far from the truth. No, she just can't get past the addiction. She's trying, but it's not working for her. And I, that just used to make me so upset. You know, she just doesn't love her children enough. Oh, that's so not true. You just, if, if you're right. It's so strong. She does that. And that's uh insurmountable almost it feels that way but it is possible to get past it you just have to keep trying you just have to keep trying you have to keep wanting and keep trying so thank you so much lynette i really appreciate it thank you thanks for having me this podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life lionrock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings useful recovery information and entertainment Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meeting schedule and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.